0: Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. A well, a wish, and a little drop of hope. This week, we're talking with debut novelist Keith Calabres. His new book, A Drop of Hope, is set in a small Midwestern town where times are tough, jobs are scarce, and miracles are in short supply. But something strange is happening in Cliffs Donnelly, Ohio. An old abandoned well has suddenly, impossibly, begun to grant wishes. Three sixth graders are the only ones who know why. Keith joins us today to talk about his path to becoming an author and what he hopes his eight to 12 year old readers will take away from this heartwarming story about Ernest, Ryan and Lizzie and their efforts to help their divided town choose empathy and kindness over anger and fear. Welcome to the program.
1: Hi, thank you for having me.
0: We are delighted that you are here. Congratulations on your debut novel.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's very exciting.
0: Tell us about A Drop of Hope.
1: A Drop of Hope is about three kids, Ryan, Ernest, and Lizzie, who discover a hidden cave that leads to the bottom of the town's old defunct wishing well. And while they're down there, they start to hear wishes from other people in the town. It starts off with some of the kids in their class, and then it kind of snowballs after that what they sort of discover is that they have the key in a very roundabout way to making some of these wishes come true thanks to some old articles that ernest found in his grandfather's attic it's very much kind of like the way random chance events can kind of snowball and do something kind of wonderful and magical
0: with kindness thrown in
1: right right the, the, the two main ideas i had when i was working on it are the messages I wanted to impart were that no act of kindness is ever wasted and we're all connected. And I think when you take those two together, then that's sort of what, what the story's about the way that like, is if you just kind of keep trying, if you kind of keep doing the little things that seem maybe like wasted effort, they'll catch on somewhere and they'll take on a life of their own. I mean, there's another kind of expression about like a good deed travels the world. Um, I didn't want to get that expansive in uh, my narrative scope, so I just followed good deeds around a little Ohio town.
0: With exquisite writing, I might add. Well, thank, just, you. thank uh, you. It's very much. such a great read. I would love for you to read an excerpt for our listeners.
1: This is a part in the book where where Ernest and Ryan, two of the main characters, Ernest has sort of stumbled into an altercation with the class bully and is about to get pummeled after school. And... Ryan, whose dad works for Ernest's dad, can't let this happen. I mean, he's not, he and Ernest aren't particularly good friends, but he knows he has to intervene. He also doesn't want to have to fight the class bully. And he also knows that Ernest will try to fight the class, will try to stand up to the class bully. So Ryan's solution is to sneak the back way out of school through the nearby woods and kind of get Ernest to his home safely. On the way, they get lost and this is where they discover the cave, and Ernest runs in the cave, and Ryan, because he's sort of become babysitter in this little escapade, has to follow him into the cave, and this is where we are now. So they're inside the cave, which they've just discovered leads to the bottom of Tompkins' Well. This section is called Inside the Well. Tompkins' Well, Ernest said. We're inside Tompkins' Well? Yeah, I think so. Ryan picked up one of the coins. Explains all the change. Some of these are pretty old. Hello? A voice echoed around them. It seemed to come from the well itself. Ryan and Ernest froze. Ryan, Ernest whispered, his voice quivering urgently. The well is haunted. No, it's not, Ryan said with less certainty than he'd hoped to muster. Um, this is Winston, the voice echoed again. Ernest whimpered. Ryan, the ghost is named Winston. Ernest, shut up, Ryan snapped. The mystery voice kept talking. Apparently it couldn't hear them. This is silly, I know, but I heard your story in school today about how you granted a wish to an old man named Tompkins and saved his baby grandson from dying. It was starting to make sense to Ryan now. This Winston Patel, he whispered. From school? Ernest looked confused. Oh, sorry, Winston said from above. Almost forgot. A quarter dropped down from above, smacking Ernest on the head. Ernest looked up the shaft, catching on. So, as you probably guessed, I'd like to make a wish, too. It's not as big as the Ezekiel Tompkins wish. It's not life or death or anything. I'm new here, and, well, it's kind of hard to fit in. I'm not asking to be popular or anything, but maybe someone my own age to talk to would be nice. I just, I'd like a friend. Ryan felt awkward hearing Winston's wish. He knew it was an accident, but still, this was something private, and Ryan felt dirty for listening to it. Anyway, thanks for listening, Winston said after a long silence. Wow, Ernest said after Winston had walked away. Ryan said, let's get out of here. I never realized Winston felt that way, said Ernest as they inched back through the tunnel. Seriously? Ryan scoffed. Kid buries his head in his sketchbook every day at lunch, never talks to anyone, barely looks up. Ryan started leading them up the trail. I know, said Ernest, but at least now we can do something about it. Do? What are we going to do? Well, we can, you know, befriend him. Befriend him? Yeah, become his friend. Ryan shook his head. It doesn't work like that. It could. Yeah, how? We just go up to him and say, Hi, Winston, let's be friends. Ernest started to answer, but Ryan plowed ahead. And what's this we you keep talking about? I mean, we aren't even friends. Uh, I know. You don't, Ryan started, then stopped. How'd you even go about explaining the world to someone like Ernest? What happens if you discover you don't like him? or he doesn't like you. Does not mean we, I, shouldn't try? Like you tried this afternoon with Tommy? Ryan marched ahead up the trail with Ernest following quietly behind. The path snaked along, switchbacking several times, and Ryan was sure they would wind up completely lost and stuck in the woods for the night. This is what you get for trying to help people, he thought. Ryan had always pegged Ernest as a sheltered, naive, rich kid, but now he realized it was way worse than that. Ernest Wilmette wasn't just rich, sheltered, and naive. Ernest was a dreamer, and dreamers, Ryan was discovering, are really exhausting people.
0: (laughs) It's great. Thank you, Keith. Now, it's interesting in the town, this is a small Midwestern town, they've fallen on hard times. Everyone is alone in their own way. They're all trying to fit in. But Ernest and his family play a unique role in the town. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Ernest's family owns a tool and die stamping company that's been in the town for a few generations. It's kind of one of the bedrocks of the town. It's facing hard times itself. And Ernest's dad wants to keep the factory open. He wants to stay in town, but it's, he's having a harder and harder time keeping the company afloat. And he's resisting the urge to sell or to move overseas for cheaper labor. So his dad is, is faced kind of like with an adult version of what Ernest is faced with, which is. How how far do you put yourself out there? How far do you risk for the betterment of everyone? That's what he's struggling with while at the same time while Ernest is trying to figure out his own young kid ways of helping out.
0: Well, now Ryan is a tough guy, but he's almost outdone by Tommy, the bully. So you do touch on bullying, which is such a subject that resonates with kids, but you approach it like from within the mind of a child. Well, adults think all you do is walk away or all you do is X or Y. And when you're stuck, you can really feel the child's predicament.
1: Right, right. It kind of goes back to uh, another thing Ryan says earlier on when Mr. Earl's talking about why we tell our kids stories.
0: Mr. Earl it, is the wonderful teacher, the favorite, very colorful teacher. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: He's great. Makes the observation that parents like to tell kids stories that make the adults feel better. We like to tell them that the world is a way that makes us feel better as parents, but doesn't always prepare the kids for the real truth out there and which is which is very much like just walk away or you know they're more scared than you are there's another line there where it's yes. like yeah they may be more scared than i am but they're not scared of me which is all that really matters at the moment
0: yes yeah that's so true you have such a gift for bringing to life these young characters this is your debut novel i know that you're a screenwriter but what inspired you to start writing for young people
1: well, I mean, I think it's always, I think it's kind of always been there in the back of my head. It's sort of, it's kind of like nothing ever, it's never ever linear. It's always kind of circling around. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I, I had a very strong connection to my own childhood. Obviously, the, uh, you know, th- this book is based on a town very similar to my own. Um, I was, I was very lucky growing up. I had a good group of friends from different backgrounds and, you know, and honestly, there's something about my hometown just. Everyone's really good at telling stories. And honestly, like when I get together with with people I grew up with, I'm more the listener. Honestly, in a, a funny kind of accent, just sort of the way things work out in my own family, I wound up being, I was working, but I was also the stay-at-home dad. I could work out of the house. So I spent a lot of time with my own kids. So I'm studying them as I'm raising them. It just, I found myself thinking in terms more of, of stories for them. Also at the same time, while I was reading with them, there's there's something about raising kids. You learn a lot about children's literature. You learn what you like and what you don't. And I was lucky. I got to, I got to learn from some of the best while I was reading to them. And then I just, just kind of all fell into place.
0: That's terrific. Well, here we're studying the debut novel, so we would love to share with our listeners, many of whom or some of whom out there may be aspiring authors. Tell us about the journey from the manuscript or the idea in your head to seeing your book on a shelf.
1: Oh, my golly. You know, I think everybody arrives at their inspiration for a story kind of differently. But there's there's always one point where the idea you had won't go away. And you're like, I need to see where this is going. And that's when you start writing, whether that's you just sit down and you start telling the story or whether you start taking you know, the more schematic approach and blocking things out, which to me, I count both those things as writing. I think a lot of times, we kind of can think of writing in two precious terms where it's like, if you're not sitting down creating the magic, you're not writing, but putting the note cards on the wall and making sure everything worked, that's just as hard as, as anything else. You know, I went down that road and there was a point where I wanted to keep the story really small. And I really just kind of wanted to be like kids, kids sneak into the well, kids hear wishes, kids make wishes come true happy ending. I started kind of doing that and it wasn't working. And if you're lucky, you create characters that kind of talk to you. They don't always say what you want to hear, but they talk to you. And Ryan wasn't having it. He's like, this is no, don't, you're not doing it right. You know? And I kind of realized that that was when I had to, to really kind of expand it. He was right about, about Ernest. You can't just go up and be like, I'm going to be your friend and solve your problem doesn't work like that. But, but trying to be kind and trying to be good can create its own solution, just maybe not the one you thought. And that's why so many of these, so many of these wishes come true in the most kind of Byzantine sort of ways. And I really went far with that. The original draft of this was 96,000 words, which to give you an idea, the current draft is somewhere around 58. So I wrote that. And off of that, I got my agent, and you know we went back and forth on it a lot. Okay, and,
0: wait, let me stop uh, you. Sure. I got my agent. Oh yeah, <laughs> that sounds very easy. Oh no, it
1: wasn't. It wasn't um, at all. Uh, and you bring up a good point because it's a pet peeve of mine whenever people whenever people sort of they, they skip over that step. It goes back to the kindness theme. It was several years ago. I adapted a book by a writer. It's an adult book. I adapted it into a screenplay. And it almost went, it was so close, but this was in 2008. And so right when we had all the pieces in place, the housing market uh, happened. And then that, that just killed any independent finance. It was gonna be like a little movie. And so it seemed at the time that all that effort was just squandered as was I'm just, you know, so you pick up, you start all over. But then after I wrote this, the producer that I worked with on that screenplay, I've stayed in touch with him and he was like, how's that going with the book? Have you, have you found, have you found anybody? And I said, no, nah, I'm having a really hard time. It's, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you send stuff out, maybe they get back to you, maybe they don't, you know, finding the right person. And he said, well, I could, I could talk to, to Brendan, who's the, Brendan Halpern's the guy whose book I, I adapted for the screenplay. It's like, I can talk to him and ask him. I know he's, he's been doing, cause the, the novel I adapted was adult, but he started writing uh, YA. And he said, I could talk to him see, see what he thinks. And I'm like, Yeah, if you wouldn't mind. So he just, out of the goodness of his heart, you Um, know, reaches out to Brendan. Brendan, out of the goodness, who who only ever knew me for changing his novel, (laughs) not only didn't he hold that against me, but he was like, "Yeah, this is my agent. Give her my name." And you know, I I did, and she responded. Yeah, it kind of goes like adapting that that book. It wasn't the linear answer, but you know, years pass. You keep at it, and in a roundabout way, that got me me here. You had a drop of hope. I did, I did.
0: (laughs) What were some of the most, or what was something very surprising along the way?
1: The big thing for me is how long- it takes, you know, we watch movies and stuff. If it's ever about a writer, they finish the book and they type the end and then it's the next scene, it's in the bookstores. And, you know, some time passed, but you figured, oh, that was probably just, you know, a month. You just have to hit print, right? I was talking with my editor, Jenny, and it was like, yeah, we're looking at bring 2019. I'm like, hey, that's great. But oh my golly, that's forever from now. Funny thing is, is that it is forever and it's excruciating to wait. But at the same time, it goes by in a blink of the eye at the same time.
0: How did you feel when you first saw your first copy of the book?
1: Kind of overwhelmed. There's a point, if you've ever had a dream that's going really well, you know, and it's, and to the point where it's like you're having a very visceral response, you know, to the dream, like this is just, this is great. And, and there's that, there's that little moment where it's like, where the rational part of your brain wakes up just enough to be like, this is, this is too good to be true. You're, you're not going to own a yacht. And then, you you wake up. It kind of felt like that. I'm like, this is this is it. Oh. This is you know, this is decades, you know, in the making in a lot of ways. And it felt so good that a part of me was like, oh crud! Now I'm going to wake up. And fortunately, I haven't yet. That's a lovely,
0: lovely analogy. What do you hope kids will take away from the book?
1: I mean, I, you know, obviously, I hope they'll they'll enjoy the story. I hope they won't be able to put it down. I hope they'll laugh. What I hope is, that, I hope that I've touched on things. That that kids may think about and may wonder if they're the only ones that think about this sort of stuff. You know, if they're the only ones that wonder about the world this way. With with these three characters, with Ryan Ernst and Lizzie, they're they're three kids who have very different views of the world, but there's a lot of common ground there. Hopefully, the kids that will relate to each one of those specific kids, and with like Winston and Tommy as well. The hope is that. You find the kid that you can relate to as that kid interacts with the other kids, you maybe get a better understanding of kids that aren't like you.
0: That's the beauty in that I felt that each child had their own strengths. And from the outside, you know, there was something glamorous about them, but they had each had their own insecurities and things they were grappling with at home and at school.
1: Right, right. I think so much of everything Kids and adults deal with can can be summed up to what our fears are and how we deal with them. I mean, one of my favorite movies is *Defending Your Life*, which I don't know if you're familiar with that one at all. But it's, it's this vision of the afterlife where where you're judged not so much on on good or bad, but how well you've you've addressed your fears in life, like how well you've stood up right. to the things you're afraid of. And obviously, I don't really, you know, I doubt whatever afterlife there is is like that but it's a pretty good way to live your life like if you really are sort of measuring what you do and who you are based on how well you're confronting your fears you'll you'll get it right pretty much all the time
0: one last question i wondered what your young critics at home think of the book have they read it <laughs> uh,
1: you know what <laughs> they haven't it's funny it's it's it, it is is it's i think i'm close with my kids obviously but i think there's something you know they've known me just as dad I mean they knew I wrote and they figured I'm probably pretty good at it because my wife hasn't left me but you know but they've never that's never been a part of who I really am to them in terms of you know as as a job and I think I don't know my guess is that they'll probably pick it up down the road
0: so to your children your dad And to us, you're a dazzling debut novelist. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank
1: you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: such a pleasure. Thanks so much again to Keith Calabrese for joining me today. And thank you for listening. To learn more about A Drop of Hope, check the show notes or go to scholasticreads.com. Special thanks to producer Emily Morrow, Associate Producer Mackenzie Cutrizula, Sound Engineer Daniel Jordan, And Music Composer Lucas Elliott Eberle. I am Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.